Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today is a special member drive edition of the program, and uh, it's a great program. We're talking about food. Always an interesting topic. We're going to be talking with Tammy Proctor, Jeannie Sir, and Jamie Sanders, hosts of Eating the Past, and Lael Gilbert, one of the hosts of uh, Bread and uh, Butter. Eating the Past explores food and beverages in history, along with our relationship to food today. It airs on Sundays at noon, ahead of the Splendid Table. Eating the Past preceded uh, that uh, program in that same time slot. And so we welcome in, let's welcome in first, Lael Gilbert. Welcome back to the program. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, so we miss eating the past. Oh, bread and butter. Yeah. Or bread and butter, sorry. Yeah. Uh, bread and butter, but uh, great to have you back in. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Tammy Proctor, back in, you were here last week talking about Queen Elizabeth. Thanks for coming back in. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Looks like your microphone cut out there just a minute. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll uh, introduce uh, Jamie Sanders, another of the uh, hosts of uh, Eating the Past. Thanks Hi, Tom. Great in. to be Thank here. You. And Jeannie Sir, a uh, third of the hosts of Eating the Past. Thank you. Thank you for, for coming in. Um, well, let's, uh, let me start with Lil Gilbert. I just want to have people get to know you guys a little bit, especially your relationship with food. Um, you, you're all into food. Uh, all, you all write about food and broadcast about food. Um, when, when did that relationship start with, with food? When did, when did you really get into food? Boy, I appreciate being able to talk about this because I think a lot of times when, when people hear that I'm a, a food writer or I, I produce things related to food, they think automatically that I'm a connoisseur or that I'm a great chef or something like that. But that's, that's really not true. I am a very good eater. I, re, I eat very well. Um, but I think that um, my relationship with food is trying to understand it, trying to understand eating rather than producing, you know, the best stuff or going to the best restaurants. Um, I love home cooking. I love experimenting. I feed um, other people. And it's food is such a big part of my life that I've spent a fair amount of time just trying to understand the relationship it plays in our community, in our society, and in our own brains. That's where my interest comes from. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Tammy Proctor, same question to you. Have you always had an interest in food? Of course, the, the eating the past is food and history, right? But also up to the present, but personally. Well, I think that I... Uh you know, I I grew up in a household where let's see the uh, your microphone's cutting out again. So oh, here I'm going to borrow somebody else's microphone. Very good, okay. thank you. Um, I grew up in a household where um, it, you know in the 1970s where we ate a lot of canned foods and you know something that was a special treat included Campbell's soup usually or <laughs> you know not exactly gourmet. Let's put it that way. Um, but. I think in particular, I, uh, as I've become a historian, I've gotten a lot more interested in the connections between food and history, and I do like to cook. But I'm also a champion eater, so I love uh, that characterization. <laughs> Wonderful. Jamie Sanders. Um, well, well, like Tammy, I also grew up um, in, a, in a household in the, in the rural south where you know, gourmet food was on the menu, though, though I think the food was, was quite good looking, looking back on it. But um, in, in college, I think I subsisted on canned chili and corn dogs. <laughs> um, but I, I, I got into food when I learned to cook while writing my dissertation. Um, so you can only write so many hours a day before you risk going insane. Mm-hmm. And so I taught myself to cook over a period of years, which must have been horrible um, for, my, for my partner, Jennifer, for many of those years. <laughs> and that's what really got me interested in, in cooking and food. And then also I working as an historian and working in Latin America. Um, just using food also as a window to understanding other cultures and experiencing them um, is 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 and and when I travel today, it's I think one of the best ways to sort of really get to know another another place. Yeah, definitely want to follow up with that food and culture. But uh, Jeannie, sir, uh, same. Uh, when when did you and how did you get into? Yeah, into I think food similar to a lot of people here. Um, I mean, food is life. Food is culture, and so. Um, I'm always fascinated by the food as culture aspect because I grew up kind of in an opposite way. I didn't eat any canned foods. It was very all homemade, all fermented, very long processes. Partly that's because um, when my parents immigrated to the U.S., you couldn't find the foods that they ate um, here readily available like you can now. I mean, kimchi is now sold in the stores, but back when they came, they couldn't find it. So you had to make it all homemade. So that kind of aspect of culture and, you know, living in different parts of the U.S., you always see where language might die off past certain generations, but the food culture never does. It's like mm-hmm. that's what sticks with people. 
Yeah. So I want to follow up immediately. I'll start with you, Jamie. Uh, you talked about food and culture. So, Jeannie, you, you mentioned I mean, another marker of culture is language, right? Yeah. But you say, you know, language might die off, but the food culture continues. Yeah, right? and you see that in immigrant, you know, communities in the U.S., even in the Midwest, right? You know, people are fourth generation Swedish. They do not speak Swedish, but they, you know, will still eat traditional foods and have customs. So, you know, that's where kind of culture lives on is through food. Yeah. So, Jamie, t- talk to me about uh, food and culture. What uh what were the th- and you started to study Latin America, right? Right. Um, and, and one of the shows I did on eating the past was talking about uh, a moment when I first went to Mexico as a, as a 19-year-old. And at that time, I had never been out of the United States. I'd never been out of the southern United States. I'd never been on a plane before until that plane ride to, to Merida. Um, you know, I'd never really eating anything except traditional southern food and, and then you know, sort of generic American fast food and, and everything. And, and, and I think one of the reasons why, why that first trip to Mexico really changed my life, um, the subject of that little Eating the Past segment, was you know, being introduced to, to new foodstuffs. And, and, of course, the food of the Yucatan is, is particularly amazing um, and, and, and very, very different than, than sort of, again, sort of you know, mass produced American, you know, you know, cuisine. And, and so, so you're know, trying to understand not just that, oh, this is a different these are different foods, different different ingredients, different ways of preparing them. But the stories and histories behind those foods, again, obviously, you know, maize, corn being central to, to so much of Mexican cuisine and especially Yucatecan cuisine um, is also what got me interested in studying history and, and being a historian. Though, though I should point out that I'm not an historian of food, actually. I'm an historian of, of actually much grimmer things like, you know, it's like slavery and, um, and, and things along those lines. Um, but... But food is, is such a you know uh, an interesting window into a people's history and culture. Hmm. Uh, Tammy Proctor, what are your thoughts on food and culture? Well, I think like uh, Jamie, you know, doing dissertation research and and traveling uh, opens uh, opens up a whole new set of questions about the meaning of culture and how it changes and. Uh, I, I'm primarily a British historian, and even since I started going to Britain 30 years ago, the food ways have changed enormously. I mean, in the 90s, if you wanted a really good meal, you went to get a curry. But after um, Britain's entry into the EU, suddenly there were French restaurants and good coffee and things that you know I had not experienced in my <laughs> earlier life in Britain, shall we say. Um, so I think that travel certainly makes that really apparent. Um, we've also done a couple of episodes on eating the past about uh, the impact of military service on families and the way they eat. And that was true of my family. My father was a cook in World War II. So he brought back uh, maybe not high cuisine, <laughs> but he, he could really you know, cook some interesting meals. And um, yeah, one of my siblings uh, traveled with her partner who was in the Navy. They brought back some interesting foods that we um, incorporated into our family life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that the introduction of new cultural ideas comes in a lot of ways. Did your uh, follow-up, uh, did your dad, I imagine he had to scale down the portions, the scale down the the <laughs> yeah, I mean, size one, of what he cooked. Right? One of the things that was really impressive was how many eggs he could crack simultaneously really? with his hands. Yeah, wow. Um, and I think that probably came from feeding you yeah. know, hundreds of men in the Pacific all at once. But you got to anyway. find efficiencies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Lily Gilbert, just in general on on uh, uh, food and culture. Um, well, it's it's a little intimidating being in a room full of of historians um, <laughs> talking about this, but um, certainly I. As a novice, maybe thinking about how um, our culture impacts the way we eat. One thing that I've been thinking about and wondering about is um, cultural appropriation. Like um, because we're such, uh, we we tend to be kind of a melting pot or maybe a salad bowl in the United States with um, our our food traditions. I wonder if there is a danger of um, experiencing a, a type of cultural food and assuming that we maybe know a little too much about the culture. Um, I, 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 but I don't, I don't want to assign guilt to food exploration because I, I think it's such a great way to open a door to, to new experiences. 
But I, I wonder, in everyone else's experience, how, how do you avoid, avoid cultural appropriation when it comes to food? Love to hear any and all of your opinions here. What, who wants to jump in first? Yeah, yeah Jenny. Um, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think about this, you know, even as a Korean American, like authenticity, right? Um, and, it, and it's really complicated. Um, because I was, you know, recently I've been reading different articles about like Korean cuisine and because Korean cuisine is so popular, but even in Korea, right, where some of the traditions have been lost because of modernization. So I read these articles where Koreans are actually don't really know how to make certain foods because you go to the grocery store and make them. So there's now, now these kind of classes where you can make like kimchi and they'll kind of teach you how to do those things. So in that kind of way, what my mom has um, really kept the tradition alive. And so it's almost in some ways like ultra Korean because she makes her own soy sauce, she makes her own miso, things that people don't do in Korea because you go to work, you go to the grocery store and you buy them. And so, you know, is she less authentic in a way because she lives in the U.S.? No, right? In some ways she's more authentic. And also like who can claim cuisine? Um, there's in the U.S. a large Korean adoptee population. So a lot of them have you know, claimed Korean cuisine, but, you know, there is kind of criticism that they are not Korean. Um, for me, I think cultural appropriation is really about, um, um, is, a, is about um, respect and naming the culture. I think when you don't, um, that's where it kind of comes into dangerous ground. But as long as you are acknowledging um, the culture and kind of the influence, I think that's where um, it can become creative and fun. Um, and, you know, in a lot of countries and cultures, food has changed over time there too, right? Nothing has stayed the same. So it's hard to pinpoint what is exactly authentic or pure at the same time. Mm. Jimmy Sanders, what are your thoughts? Well, I think what Jenny's talking about authenticity is is you know is a very interesting question, and we you know we we see it also in in Mexico. There's huge debates over this now. You know what is what is authentic Mexican cuisine, um, and of course the you know one answer to that is there isn't one authentic cuisine. It, it's it's what Mexico is a huge country with millions of people and and you know food cuisines are what people do what's what people practice um so so yes maybe you're you're not making tortillas a, a traditional way and 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 certainly that you know the people that can still do that that's amazing and interesting but it it, it you know it food cuisines are what people eat what they do how they cook themselves um and and sort of also i think part of maybe what leal was getting at was was recognizing that diversity within places not saying like oh this is mexican cooking because in Mexico, the, the 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 cuisine from the north to to the south of Yucatan um, is 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 almost completely different. I mean, there, there's some shared, um, um, obviously shared ingredients, shared practices in 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 that. But I think that's a, that's one in, important aspect of trying to avoid these ideas of cultural appropriation is recognizing the diversity within you know within these cuisines um, that that exist and recognizing that that authenticity is often just a, a creation um, and what's more interesting is is sort of discovering finding out how people are actually eating and what they're experiencing in their in their daily lives yeah uh, Tammy do you, anything any thoughts on this yeah uh, yeah I I agree with uh, some of what Jamie was saying about authenticity and I think that um, you know, focusing on how foods change as they are used by other peoples can be really interesting. I'm reading uh, Bill Buford's book right now, Dirt, which is about his trip to France to try to learn to be a French cook. But he's kind of obsessed with knowing how much of French cooking really originated in Italy. And now that I'm getting close to the end of the book, he's... Um, He's sort of changed his tune. He's, he's realized it's much more complicated than just being able to track this food started here and then it moved or this preparation started here and then it moved. And so that's, uh, that's been really interesting. That being said, I think what he's encountered in France is something I've seen at conferences there. I went to a conference on the history of the potato and um, in France. And it was kind of absurd because many people in their papers were basically talking about France as if it had invented the potato. You know, Parmentier was, 
you know, he perfected it, therefore it's a French product. And there were people from Ecuador there, you know, and it was like, well, hmm, <laughs> this feels like appropriation to me. So, you know, it's, I, I do think the notion of really respecting uh, where people are coming from in these conversations on food, though, is what's significant. Interesting. So, Lily, you you started this uh, this this thread of conversation. What what do you think? Well, uh, I think I think um, you guys are so practical. I mean, and based on reality. But I, a lot of times, our our ideas and cultures are not based on the reality of living. I I think about Italy. I I lived there for a bit, and they. Um, Jamie said that um, food is what you do in the home, but. The Italian government actually has committees who say what Parmesan cheese is, what authentic margarita pizza is, and what balsamic vinegar is. It comes from a certain region. It has certain qualities. And really, I mean, it's made by certain people, right? So um, I think you have you, – you are right. Of course, you are right. But I think you have two competing um, powers um, trying to – uh, take claim of of what food is. You know what what if Parmesan cheese is made in Wisconsin? Is it Parmesan cheese if it tastes exactly if it's delicious and it's you know has the umami and it has and you can slice it thinly and um, put it on your pasta? Is is it Parmesan cheese? I, I would say yes. The Italian government would say no. Yeah. I mean, it puts me in mind of language, right? The, the French Academy uh, spends a lot of energy, you know, trying to prevent le skyscraper and le sweater, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Those, those abominations. Uh, but it's kind of a losing battle, I, I think, right? Yeah. Yes, Tammy. I just want to follow up real quick on the, the question of having, um, you know, these products that have a designation, like, you know, they're they're designated pure, they're designated from a local environment. I think in Italy a few years ago, there was a huge scandal over um, prosciutto because uh, there were people making sort of subpar versions and calling it prosciutto. And it caused a major scandal, but it also, it, it, it lowers the value of the original products. And so there's, there's a kind of business question here as well about, um, you know, being able to say, I produce this in traditional ways with, you know, within the rules um, and frauds can, can really destroy that, that product. Yeah. And just to complicate things with um, climate change, some of these regions that produce are no longer able to produce the high quality items. So it's mm. a real question of identity. If you can't produce wine, you know, um, in a certain region that's famous for that wine because climate change has shifted the weather patterns, you know, what does that mean? Mm. Yeah. I, and I, lo- I love that in Italy, prosciutto is a scandal. I, I <laughs> simply love that. <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of an interesting scandal to have, right? Yeah. So Italian, right? Yeah. Uh, Tammy, you went to the potato conference, right? Uh, it puts me in mind, just apropos of nothing, our friend Dan Drost, uh, extension vegetable specialist, uh, is on our air sometimes. Uh, he periodically will will come back from the World Asparagus Congress, and I love that they call it the Congress. It's an Asparagus Congress. So anyway, I will say all yeah. of the food congresses and conferences um, always have wonderful snacks. Oh, oh that's, so it's that's definitely great. worth going to. Um, yeah, just yeah. just for that reason alone, and the fights that that break out in in this particular one, the fight over who originated the frit, uh, French fries. Uh-huh. That one was really fun. Wow, I gotta, I gotta get out. I gotta go to go to more of these congresses and, and conferences. Well, let's uh, let's head to a break, and uh, as we do so, I want uh, each of you to put on your 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 uh, member pledge hat, and um, and I'm gonna list your support and appealing to your fellow listeners um, on why why they should become members, why they should renew their membership, uh, why support Utah Public Radio. I don't know, Tammy, if you want to go first. Yeah. Well, um, <laughs> obviously us, right? I yeah. mean, our show is really fun. Um, but I think that the the really wonderful thing about uh, Utah Public Radio is the variety of programming. And um, I like just kind of discovering things by accident. If I'm driving and I have it on, you know, the stories that pop up are not the things I would go looking for if I was just scrolling through my phone. 
And so I think it, it actually promotes a much more broad-minded view of the world just because you don't know what you're going to get each day. And, and Tom, on your show, you know, every day is really different. And so I think I appreciate that aspect. Alila Gilbert, why, why do you support UPR? Um, I, I love understanding nuance and complexity. And it seems like today so many things are in sound bites that um, ideas are oversimplified and shallow. And that's not reality. If, if you really want to engage with the world, you need to understand things from people's different perspectives and um, details in history. And that's what UPR gives me is is that complexity and nuance um, in layers on topics that I maybe I thought I understood, but I can always understand more deeply. Mm. Jeannie, sir, why, why should you become a member of UPR? Yeah, I mean, you know, I am the business manager for Utah Public Radio. So very practically, <laughs> I would love more pledges. <laughs> but I've been a longtime public radio listener. And so I think very similar to um, what Tammy was saying, you know, I always know that public radio is where you can get the national news, the world news, and also its own local flavor. So that is where I can stay connected locally, think, you know, know about the the community, the, its leaders, um, what people are thinking about. And so that, to me, has always been kind of where um, the best storytelling has come from. Jamie Sanders, why should folks uh, support UPR? Well, echoing, echoing Jeannie, um, one of the things that I love so much about Utah Public Radio is the combination of the local and the global. And so it's where I can go for, you know, to find out about, about where I live, um, you know, with Access Utah especially, and all the other programs that focus on local concerns. But it's also where I get a lot of my international news listening to the BBC um, that's broadcast on UPR. And so I think it's that combination of, of being where you are and, and placing yourself in, a, in a, a, a sort of a global citizen as well that makes UPR so special. Well, thank you uh, very much. We do need your support, and uh, today is it's just a little incentive. It's $5 Tuesday, um, and uh, so we're asking you to join the, the fall membership drive with your uh, pledge. Uh, make a new $5 a month donation, that's $60 for the year, or increase your current sustaining donation by $5 a month or more, and you can claim a morning edition or all things considered mug. So the couple of... Uh, uh, one of those incentives for you. Uh, of course, your pledge right now, your donation right now, helps to support Access Utah, helps to support um, eating the past, uh, helps to support uh, Wild About Utah and Beehive Archive and uh, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, all the great programs, the Splendid Table, the list goes on and on. Your support right now helps those programs to continue and helps us to continue uh, this programming. And uh, when you call, uh, just indicate you'd like uh, one of those mugs. Or if you go online to upr.org, just indicate in the comments section. I'm increasing by $5 a month, or I'm coming on board new at $5 a month, and I'd like one of those mugs. Indicate all things considered or morning edition mug. We really appreciate uh, you doing that. And uh, I, I quite frankly take it personally to, to see the calls coming in during all things during Access Utah, right? Uh, to see that we're doing okay. Uh, this particular program costs more than some of the others because we have to bear bear the entire cost ourselves. It's not networked out. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 is the uh, toll-free number, or you can go to upr.org. That's upr.org. 800-826-1495 or upr.org. More following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's a special member drive edition of the program. We're talking food, and we're talking with some great folks who are into food and uh, write about it, talk about it on UPR. We're talking with Lael Gilbert, who is uh, one of the hosts of our previous uh, program, Bread and Butter. And we have all three of the hosts of our current uh, food program, Eating the Past. We have Tammy Proctor, Jeannie Sir, and Jamie Sanders with us as well. This discussion on, uh, on food. Um, so I don't forget, Tammy Proctor, you wanted to, to talk about an event coming oh, up? Yeah, just for anybody who's in Logan, um, the origins of the Eating the Past radio show actually come out of a COVID project that the history department did with the library to, um, we, we did live cooking demos with, um, the 
the Special Collections Cookbook Collection. Um, so with Jennifer Duncan uh, introducing all the books and then celebrity faculty cooks, of course, doing the recipes, these historic recipes. So at homecoming on October 8th, uh, two hours before the game at the Chass event, we will have samples of some of those uh, foods. And uh, Jennifer and I will be there. Phoebe Jensen's making her very good cake, which is an early modern cake recipe. Mm. And, um, you know, we'd love it if people would stop by the tables and, you know, be able to actually eat the food we talk about. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So tell us again. It's uh, October 8th, and it's it's kind of like the tailgate before the game. So okay. I actually don't know what time because it's two hours before the game, and you know how college football yeah, is these that's days. Right. They that's don't right. tell you until right at the last minute. Tammy, I'm offended yeah. you didn't ask for my tuna jello shots. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those were so good. I, I can't believe that. I'm sure that they would go really, um, <laughs> really well. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, so this is tailgating. Uh, uh, I guess it's yeah, called Home a, to yeah. Chass, and uh, I think it's it's table set up kind of as part of the tailgating. Yeah, oh, wonderful uh, before the game. Yeah, kind of kind of a tailgating. Uh, a twist on that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right uh, with that's cake. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, that that reminds me. I'm sorry about these asides, but uh, I don't know if you ever watched the the, the uh, television series Portlandia. One of my favorite uh, episodes has them tailgating at a uh, uh, Garrison Keillor event. <laughs> and it, it's, it's so NPR, as a lot of the show is. And so they're, they're doing wine and cheese and, you know, that, that, that kind of thing, uh, waiting to get into Garrison Keillor. But anyway, um, I, want to, I want to talk about, we've talked about culture more broadly. I want to talk about family, family culture. So, Lael Gilbert, uh, tell me a favorite family recipe or family, family food. Oh, okay. Well, put me on the spot here. Um, you know, our, our family cooking has shifted dramatically in the past two years. Um, I, I was always, I always kind of took the lead on most uh, family cooking and eating. And then when the pandemic hit, um, my husband, he took charge. And it wasn't, I mean, I, w- I was used to him maybe stepping in occasionally, but no, he, he was in charge. He's in charge now. He's in charge. <laughs> and it's been so interesting to me, for me to shift from um, being the producer of all food to an audience. Um, but some of the more interesting foods um, we've created lately is that um, for, I do air quotes here, for my birthday, my husband got me a, an outdoor um, pizza oven. And so we've been doing a lot of um, authentic um, pizza with, the, you know, the thin crust and the beautiful char on the bottom and the kind you just put a few very high quality ingredients on. Um, and that's been so fun, um, especially because I've been the consumer of it rather than the producer of it. And then um, hot pots is, is something else that um, we've been doing, which involves a, a you know a bubbling cauldron on the table of a broth, and, and you put vegetables and um, thinly sliced meat all together as a group and pull them out on your plate and eat them. And those those have been simple recipes, but the act of participating in them just brings our family a lot of joy. Oh, well, that sounds great. I want to go to Jeannie Sir next. But, uh, tell me a favorite family uh, dish. Um, yeah, I have so many. Um, I mean, I grew, I grew up traditionally eating Korean um, food. And as Jamie has said, that means a lot of things, right? Because it's all very regional. <laughs> and so that doesn't really mean very much um, my mother who is the main cook or the only cook of the family comes from an island so it is I grew up with a very seafood heavy diet which you might not see like in certain cities um, in Korea but yeah nowadays um, you know I have to say I think my background of growing up um, with someone who cooked so much and so deeply um, I don't cook that way um, because, you know, I'm all about efficiency <laughs> and time. Um, but what it has, I think, over time made me realize is that I'm a bit of a fearless cook because I don't, um, 
you know, like I will make my own pasta or do things. And people say, well, how do you do that? I said, you just do it because, you know, that's what you do. You just make your food from scratch. And so it's made me fearless in that way. And so that still kind of continues today. Um, and kind of going off of our previous conversation, my husband comes from an Italian-American family. And so, you know, he grew up traditionally. And it's interesting because I will make something like pizza or a certain sauce and he'll say, oh, how can you add that extra thing? I said, you just do. And he's like, well, that's not very Italian. Um, but there's an aspect where I'm also fearless in that way because it's not my culture, right? So then I'm like, oh, why can't you add that ingredient? It makes it taste better <laughs> to me. And so, yeah. Um, but just our family um, foods are very, I guess, Asian-based. I mean, I'm still to this day very all about rice and side dishes. Essentially, that's how we eat in our household. Mm. James Sanders, uh, tell me a favorite family dish. Well, well, when I, when I think about family, I, um, I'm thinking also about my roots in the South, but actually I, I can't cook Southern food. I, I was never taught to do that. Um, this is, you know, we could talk about food and gender as well. Um, you know, cooking roles were, you know, I, my, my mom um, never taught me how to cook. And so I can't duplicate her cooking, which I love so much. Um, though, though there's more to it than that, because also my, my mom always had this, this slight little fight with her own mother, my grandmother, because she claims that, that my grandmother never taught her her secret to frying chicken, um, you know, essential to, to Southern, to Southern, you know, you know, cuisine. Um, so there's also just, just this, 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 this idea that you can do this and no one else can do that um, um, in the South as, as well. So, so, you know, when I learned to cook, I, 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 I can sort of base some things off of that, those memories, but I learned to cook, you know, again, um, just experimenting things as, as Jeannie just mentioned. And so one thing that I like to make now for my for my family for my for my um, my my partner my daughter is 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 um, reflecting back on a, a show I did for eating the past on fried fish and the importance in 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 you know Floridian cuisine um, but I'm I'm you know I'm too lazy to do that it's actually really a pain to fry fish to do it well um, and it takes a lot of time and it's not particularly good for you so this time of year what I love to do is go down to the farmers market um, and get some some um, rainbow trout fillets from Mountain Valley trout farm um, and just infuse some olive oil with garlic and, and sage you know, brush it on there, throw it on the grill just for a few minutes, um, steam some some fresh corn, um, get some okra and cook that up. And so that sort of reminds me of the South while while being, you know, sort of what I can do and, and sort of reflecting where I live and, and, and you know, the, the foods that my family like now. Mm. Tommy Proctor, same question to you. Favorite uh, family dish? Well, um, I think unlike Jamie, I did learn to cook as a, as a child. Um, although in my household, the boys and the girls learned the recipes and, you know, we were all required to work on things. Um, but the one thing I think that I learned that probably my brothers didn't was how to make pie. And so I would say pie is something that I loved as a child. It was very important to our family. We had pie a lot. Um, I suspect because it was pretty cheap and easy to make. Um, but I still make it today. Uh, fruit pies, you know, custard pie. I really love raisin pie, but my husband's not all that thrilled mm. by that. Um, and some of the ingredients you can't get here very well. Like in Missouri, we often had a gooseberry pie, and I, I haven't really been able to find those easily in Utah. So, you know, pie, I think. Pie, yeah. Yeah, you can't go wrong with pie. Can't, can't That's go my wrong theory. With pie. That's right, yeah. I want to follow up with, uh, you know, Jamie mentioned uh, food and gender. So, Lael, you, you talked about how, I guess, the pandemic, your husband took over. Did he, was he raised cooking or did he, what precipitated this? Um, he was not raised cooking, but I think I, um, it reflects back a little bit to what Jeannie was saying where he, he was raised maybe not with such strict gender norms as, as some people are. Um, and so he, he felt no qualms jumping in. I think, um, it's been a beautiful thing. It's been a beautiful yeah. thing because I, I, you know, I, um, when you talk about food and gender, there's a lot of, um, power, um, constructs at play. Um, and, um, me being able to, it sounds so, it sounds so funny, but me being able to let go of that control and hand it over to him was 
it was so hard. It was so hard. Um, but it, it's something I did. I I don't know why it was so hard. It 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 partly defined my role in the house. It it reflected all this work I'd put in over the years to learn these skills. It reflected my tradition in um, cultural Utah. I and 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 being able to just kind of take a breath. And let go of that control was um, a, a tiny revolution. I'm going to call it a tiny revolution in our house because it, it really isn't that big a deal, but it really was such a big deal. So that now my time, how I spend my time is different. How my kids look at me is different and how my kids look at, at Jeff is different. Um this doesn't i'm i'm going to set cooking skills aside because he is a fairly good cook within his realm but he hasn't had the 40 years of experience that i've had and 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 so for me stepping back from those 40 years and all those heavy cultural definitions has been my victory, and him getting to eat hamburger more than once a week is his victory. <laughs> that's, that's that's wonderful. Uh, you know, I want to follow up with you and your husband. Did you, it, he definitely has uh, ideas of how Italian cooking should go, right? Yes. Uh, but but did 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 he cook? Does he cook? Growing up, he doesn't. I mean, he can cook, and mm. he has cooked for himself. Um, he grew up Irish Italian, you know, that was culturally how he grew up. Um, but we don't really cook that cuisine. Um, he is a historian of Asian culture. So that helps in the fact that he's lived, um, long periods of time in places like Nepal and India. And so our house, our household diet does match up because of his kind of professional background and where he's lived for a lot of his adult life and my kind of childhood and cultural life. And so, um, you know, in that way, we are that rice-based family, mm-hmm. and um, we haven't had that much conflict over that. Mm-hmm. Anything else you'd like to follow up, Jamie says? You you brought this topic up, so. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. j- just that that. Um, uh, I think it's. I think you know. Hopefully, we're moving into a, a realm where you know, co- you know, cooking is not obviously so heavily defined by gender, and and it, it reflects sort of your household's interests and strengths. So, um, my partner um, does not cook. Um, <laughs> um, she doesn't like to. It really stresses her out. She's actually quite good at it when when she when she wants to do it, but it, but it, it causes her stress. And for me, it's the exact opposite. After you know, uh, after a day, you know, you know, doing history stuff and teaching, um, it's a way of relaxing. Um, and it's already creating something, you know, we, you know, when, when, when we produce an historical product, you know, it's such a slow process. You, you might have a really good day working on a book and you might get less than 1% of that book done by, by, by far, less, less than a, a tenth of a percent done. Um, and, and cooking is, is what I love about it is you, you start something, um, you, you, you create something and then you get to enjoy it with, with your family or friends and it, and it's, and it's, it begins and it ends. And that to me is a, a real luxury. And so, so I think we're, I think it's, 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 I think it's nice now that, that families are more approaching this about, about, you know, not based upon gender, like in how I grew up in sort of more sort of strictly defined roles, but again, who, you know, based on individual skills and interest about what they what they like to do and, and what they what they can do. Mm. Tim Proctor, anything you'd like to follow up with food and gender? Uh, well, I I can sympathize with the giving up control in the kitchen because um, my spouse uh, started cooking more during COVID and uh, again he has kind of a repertoire and he's good at what he what he's good at. Uh, the thing that kind of drives me crazy and he's probably not listening to this hopefully <laughs> is that um, he's not very good at the planning part. So mm-hmm. sometimes I'll come home from work and I'm just exhausted and I just want dinner and he's like, oh, what should we make tonight? <laughs> and that's uh, <laughs> so um, we've had a few conversations about you know if you're gonna make something you have to actually have the ingredients in advance. That's something. So um, it's been kind of funny, but we mm. we did. A lot of cooking together during COVID, which I think was really nice. Uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I just want to add one more thing about the gender issue. I mean, we're talking a lot about the household gender, but I mean, in the larger picture, the gender issue of like the famous chefs mm-hmm. in America or in the world are male, right? But that household is definitely, and domestic cooking is very much a woman's kind mm-hmm. of business. Yeah, still, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's head toward another break. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd like to hear about any driveway moments you guys have had, either for UPR or, or other public radio stations. Can you, anything come to mind where you, where you just uh, you just couldn't give up? You had to stay in the car to listen to the rest of the story. Um, or just a favorite favorite story you've heard or something that was especially valuable to you uh, from, from public radio listening. Anything come to mind for anybody? Um, I guess uh, I can think of one example of this when we used to live in Wisconsin and we listened to Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm not a pet owner, but I loved the show Calling All Pets, and it was kind of like pet psychology. So, you know, somebody would come and say, you know, my cat is really misbehaving and what should I do? And the woman who ran the program was fantastic. She had this fantastic voice, and she would talk them through and soothe and give practical uh, advice. And I really couldn't stop listening. Like I'd have to sit in, in, in the driveway to find out what happened to this cat, you know, um, whenever that show was on. Uh, we broadcast that show as well. Yeah. I, I loved calling all pets. They, and, and, uh, just to, just to be clear to our listeners, um, we didn't take it off our air. They, they ceased production. So, uh, Lil. I'm, I'm going with eating the past. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I have so enjoyed um, listening to these segments. They're, they're, it, it is so fun to hear people who are, are passionate about the, the, the complexity and, of food and understanding the cultural be, culture behind it. And um, it, it makes me feel a little less alone, I guess. Um, but, and then to have someone else do the work of diving deep into these topics and then just you know, presenting to them to me in these wonderful little segments that are, are so lively, entertaining, and informative. Yes. Um, Jamie Sanders. Well, I'll just pitch the show that, that we proceed, which is a splendid table. Um, again, it's a chance to, to, to think about recipes and ideas about food that I haven't thought of before. And, and so, so that, that's what will hold me to, to my radio or in my car is, is I have a chance to learn something that, that I might even try to implement one day. The most of the time I don't. Um, but, but, uh, but, but every now and again, there, there are recipes like I have to try that. Yeah. Uh, Jeannie. I have to agree with Jamie. I think I've been a longtime listener of The Splendid Table, so that's been a show that has really spoken to me. Um, But it's funny that you mentioned a driveway moment because this Saturday I was helping out UPR and on the phone, so I'm the person answering the phones for your pledges, and I got to UPR and I was listening to the radio and there was a story about chess drama in the chess world. And I tried to listen as long as I could, but then I had to get out of the car to do my um, phone shift. So later I went back and found it online to listen to the rest of the story. That was fascinating. Yeah, that's, it is. Uh, it's still fascinating. Abs- ongoing. On, it, ongoing drama in the chess world. Yes. And you hear it right here on UPR, right? That's right. That's, that's, where, you, that's where you get the scoop. Uh, we, uh, we, we're looking for your support. If you have not renewed your membership, you become uh, renewed your sustainer uh, membership. That just means it's regular and automatic. We'd love to have you do that. If you're a potential new member to Utah Public Radio, we definitely need you. And it just takes a couple of minutes. We'll take some basic information, how much you'd like to give. We'll be very happy with that. And we'd love to have you on board. All the programs that uh, were just mentioned and Access Utah and all the other programs, they're supported by you. This is a member-supported radio, and uh, you are a member, a potential member of Utah Public Radio. It's uh, so important that uh, that you go from listening to that critical, critical step of uh, actually picking up the phone and, and calling and uh, kicking in, could it, could it be $5 a month? Uh, and at that level, uh, on this $5 Tuesday, if you join at $5 a month or increase your donation by $5 a month, you can get a Morning Edition or All Things Considered mug. Just indicate which one you would like. Here's how to do that. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org, 800-826-1495, or upr.org. And thank you. We'll have a short break now. Thanks for listening to uh, Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking food. We're talking with the hosts of uh, Eating the Past, uh, Tammy Proctor, Jeannie Sir, and Jamie Sanders, and one of the hosts of Bread and Butter, Lael Gilbert. We have a very brief final segment uh, here ahead of uh, Richard Ratliff and Citizens Academy, which will end uh, the program. 
Uh, so let me just uh, go around anything, one minute, anything you'd like to say. Start with uh, Tammy. Oh, we'll start with Jeannie. Yeah. Start with Jeannie. <laughs> I would just like to say that um, for Eating the Past, we have an upcoming year-long series, and we are exploring all 50 states and Puerto Rico, um, and we're talking about food cultures within those states, and very similar to the conversations we've been having, you know, what defines the state's food culture? Who does that mean? Um, doesn't mean, you know, it's current state, it's... Um, you know, immigrants? Does it mean, you know, how has it changed over time? So these are all the questions that we're exploring about the U.S. Wonderful. Um, Jamie Sanders. And and I will be um, recording a show um, th- this week um, on Louisiana, um, which is our next day. I did Florida, which is already aired on, on UPR. And we'll be talking about, about okra, uh, which is this, this uh, a crop that was brought to Louisiana from Africa. And and its and its different roles in in Louisiana cuisine as in Louisiana this you know one of the most fascinating places in the U.S. South because it you know it it has Southern culture but also French and Spanish culture and of course okra being very powerfully African American culture. Oh, wonderful! Tell me, Proctor. I should say I saw Jamie at the uh, gardener's market last week, and he told me how to grill okra, and it was delicious. And so I'm going to do that again. So thank you, Jamie. Um, I'm also recording a couple of episodes this week. The next one is um, for Rosh Hashanah, which is next Monday, and it's going to be about Connecticut. And I'm using one of the historic cookbooks from uh, USU's special collections for that. Oh, great. Yeah. Little Gilbert. Well, I appreciate the chance to be on today, and I'm just to send a shout out to all those people who are harvesting this time of year. They have their raspberries and their blackberries, and if you're up to your elbows in apple peels, I can commiserate with you. Um, turn on your Utah Public Radio and get to work. Very good. Uh, excellent advice. Well, uh, just to mention here at the end that it's $5 Tuesday. And uh, so we would love you to come on board as a member of Utah Public Radio at $5 a month or more, or increase your donation, whether that's uh, a, a sustainer or whatever it, uh, you do it, increase that by $5 a month. If you do either of those things, you can uh, claim a morning edition or all things considered mug. So we hope you'll take advantage of that. Just indicate in the comments section that uh, you'd like either the morning edition or all things considered mug. Uh, your pledge today, your donation today, uh, how helps keep this programming strong, helps to produce the programs. You essentially join the team of uh, the Splendid Table or, or Access Utah. You're sitting there right with us by providing some of the funds, and uh, we do appreciate it. Here's how you do that. 800-826-1495 is the number, 800-826-1495, or you can go online to upr.org. That's upr.org. Well, uh, we, th- we thank each of you for coming in. Layla Gilbert, thank you so much. Tammy Proctor, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Jeannie Sir, thank you so much. Thank you. And Jamie Sanders, thank you. Uh, thank you. And of course, tune in to Eating the Past noon on Sundays right here on Utah Public Radio. You can go back to our website and look up uh, Bread and Butter and listen to all the episodes there as well. And uh, thanks everyone for listening to Access Utah today. Recently, I was talking with a political leader here in the state who asked Richard, How would I recognize a good or bad relationship? And supposing I found a bad one, how could I fix it? She continued, We all see relationships that we think are good or bad, but sometimes I'm not sure, and even when I think I'm sure, I'm not sure how it got there, or if it's a bad one, what to do about it. How can I be sure, and what can I do about the bad ones? First, in this session, let's talk about good relationships. All good relationships have a few things in common. Different analytical systems may count them differently, but mine lists six things in common. Number one, all good relationships are mutually beneficial for all parties. Number two, all good relationships are mutually pleasant for all parties involved. Number three, there is an intersection of purpose among the parties. That is, in good relationships, there is good reason for the relationship to exist. Number four, there is mutual respect in good relationships. We tend to respect certain admirable characteristics in others, such as competence, integrity, responsibility, and caring for the welfare of other people. Number five, there is mutual trust. We tend to trust people we believe will help us and not hurt us. Number six, 
Good relationships have adequate means for the parties to conduct the relationship. Now, six things may seem like a lot to remember at first, but think of it. Every good relationship you know about or can think of has the same six, only six. The best I can tell, these six are both necessary and sufficient for any healthy relationship. Only six things. Mutual benefit, mutual pleasantness, intersection of purpose, mutual respect, mutual trust, and adequate means. I have used this system hundreds, maybe thousands of times. It always works, whether on family relationships, commercial relationships, political and diplomatic relationships, friendships, any relationship. If you have questions about these things, let me know, and I can discuss them more in later commentaries. But even in a general sense, it's pretty easy to identify the six in good relationships. I had a wonderful opportunity in the late 1980s to see these six things at work when New Zealand was reinventing its entire political economic structure from primarily political socialism to a primarily Hayekian free market economy. I was consulting with New Zealand's Auditor General's office at the time, which was trying to make the adjustments necessary to play its role in the new political economy. I observed a very difficult task made immeasurably easier and successful with outstanding relationship management skills. Certainly, in a change of that magnitude, there was the possibility of disagreement, contention, gridlock, and social disruption. While there was indeed disagreement, I observed no serious contention to derail the program. The successful conversion of a primarily socialistic economy to a free market economy was accomplished in just a few years among seasoned and able politicians and other major players of diverse stripes and interests without serious disruption of society. It was as if everyone was saying, this is what we're going to do. Let's make it work for all of us. And they did. Maybe not perfectly, even yet, but certainly world-class. Although my work did not call for a formal analysis of the relationships at the time, it seemed to me that with few exceptions, whether between individuals, government offices, political parties, private sector institutions, or between private sector and public sector institutions, the relationships involved in the change met the six requirements for any healthy relationship. Mutual benefit, mutual pleasantness, intersection of purpose, mutual respect, mutual trust, and adequate means to conduct the relationship. And that is how you know a good one. They did it. Wouldn't it be nice if, you know, we here could do more of that? I believe we can. It is only a short decision away for all of us. A listener has requested that I address the issue of freedom next week. The following week, I will return to the theme of how to manage bad relationships. This is Richard Ratliff for Citizens Academy. I am a political relationist. You may be too. I hope so. Till next time.